Did a clerical error delay justice in the Delphi case? The Moscow-Idaho Police Department? Well, they've got a messaging problem. Let's discuss some courtroom procedural issues regarding what takes place with defendants. George Wagner was found guilty. The jury just didn't believe his testimony. That 70s show star, Danny Masterson, well, his trial resulted in a mistrial. And then our dumb criminal of the day thinks he can do whatever he wants. Someone disagreed with that statement. Let's talk about it. Good day. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for watching. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell so you receive notifications when we go live or put up new content. And always remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in Crime Talk. All right. You know the drill as well. Support the people that support Crime Talk. Like many Americans, we got a dog during the pandemic. My quarantine dog, Miss Winnie the Bulldog. Now, Miss Winnie has grown accustomed to being around us all the time. When we were leaving the house, Winnie would have extreme anxiety, so we decided to look for natural products to help with her anxiety. We looked for the highest quality CBD treats, and we were not satisfied, and neither was Winnie. So we created a high quality CBD product that absorbs faster and provides the required results faster. Baked in Colorado CBD treats and beverage enhancers are made with nanotechnology. The nanotechnology makes the CBD extraction more pure, also allows for Baked in Colorado products to work faster. Baked in Colorado products can help reduce your pet's anxiety, ease joint pain, and help with your dog's skin problems. Go to our online store and see what Baked in Colorado product is best for your dog. When you order at bakedincolorado.com, enter code WINNIE and receive 15% off your first order. We have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If your dog does not experience the desired results in 30 days, return the product and we will refund your money. No questions asked. Let's go ahead and open the record for December 1st, 2022. Why did it take so long for Richard Allen to be charged? Well, it appears that his information was essentially lost. That's right. The 2017 interview with uh, Mr. Allen was overlooked due to a clerical error. A civilian FBI employee mislabeled or misfiled the tip information in their system, which means it didn't show up in the correct location during a data search. Investigators actually interviewed him, like I said, back in 2017, when he told them that, hey, I was on the Monon High Bridge, um, and the free bridge between 1.30 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. on the day of the alleged murders. The timing matched the window in which the girls were killed. Now, that's according to the police. As the case stalled, police returned to the investigation's very beginning. That's when the police discovered the interview with Mr. Allen, prompting them to look much closer at him as a suspect. Now, the Indiana State Police obviously announced his arrest on Monday, October 31st, even though he'd actually been arrested on the 29th. Now, his potential tie to the case remained under sealed until November 29th, when the judge released the redacted version of the probable cause. And you may want to check out our live video that we did Tuesday night, where we went through it line by line. But the uh, court document said that the unspent round from a gun allegedly owned by Mr. Allen tied him to the murders of Abby Williams and Libby German, and investigators discovered the bullet just feet away from the girls' bodies. 
Now, Allen told the police he had never let anyone else use his Sig Sauer P226, and according to the affidavit, a laboratory analysis determined that the unspent round had been cycled through Allen's gun. And Mr. Allen was unable to explain uh, why the unspent round was cycled through his gun. Now, you'll definitely want to take a look at our video that we did Tuesday night on our live. And if you're a Patreon, you want to check that out because we explain the whole cycling process. And um, like I said, I think it's not going to be too difficult for the defense to come up with somebody and say, hey, you have a mass-produced gun. There's no way that you could possibly say it came from this particular firearm with Mr. Allen. Um, now, based upon that information and some eyewitness accounts, police believe that uh, Mr. Allen is the man seen on the video taken by Libby German. And police had obviously released a grainy photo of the man commonly known as Bridge Guy as far back as 2017. Now, for now, Mr. Allen remains in custody and a bail hearing is set for early February of 2023. So I understand in the age of computers, everybody wants to go digital. Okay, I have some younger people that work in my office and we have digital, but if we have a case that is going to go to trial and we know it's going to go to trial from the beginning, you know what we do? We print everything out. It's so much easier to find. It can't be, you know, put into a different file by mistake that you don't know where it is. You have everything bait stamped from one through whatever the number goes through and you can always pull it out. You have an original paper copy. Sometimes we get things so complicated uh, with computers and trying to be so smart and savvy. Just go old school and use paper. I'm telling you. And when you go to trial, some judges want to say, oh, we want to do this and that. I'm telling you, technology doesn't always work and you have to be prepared with backup. And that's paper to present your exhibits, your video, your statement, whatever you're going to introduce. You got to have the backup. Go paper. I'm telling you. I know it's old school. I'm old, but I'm telling you, paper is the way to do it. All right. Next on the docket. Yesterday, we brought you the story of the prosecutor uh, that was leading the investigation in the Idaho quadruple murder in Moscow, Idaho, say that uh, the house could have been the target, not just the individuals, but the house. Well, the police there in Idaho in uh, Moscow, Idaho, they want to clarify the prosecutor's statement, and they put out a statement to that effect. The Moscow Police Department issued a press release on Wednesday saying that they are now unsure of the claim that the attack on the University of Idaho students was intended for any of the occupants of the home. Detectives do not currently know if the residents or any occupants were specifically targeted, but they continue to investigate. Now, early Wednesday morning, the Leta County prosecutor, Bill Thompson, told uh, news stations that investigators believe that the attack was intended for a uh, specific person. Within hours, however, the Moscow Police Department uh, posted to their social media account, making a clarification. Conflicting information has been released over the past 24 hours. The Leta County Prosecutor's Office stated the suspects specifically looked at the residents and that one or more of the occupants were undoubtedly targeted, the police department said in their post. And they said, we have spoken to the county prosecutor's office and identified this was a miscommunication. 
Detectives do not currently know if the residents or any occupants were specifically targeted, but they continue to investigate. However, this wasn't the first time officials close to the case had said that it was a targeted attack. Earlier this week, the Moscow police chief, James Fry, stated that they still believe this was a targeted attack. Everyone wants answers, he said. We want to give those answers as soon as we can. Now, police had initially said they believed there was no imminent threat to the community, but later walked back that statement as well. Uh, Chief Fry said, uh, I own the messaging problem at the very beginning. We should have done things a little better. We need to correct that. I would say so. And then on November 23rd, the uh, Moscow police captain, Roger Lanier, said that investigators did in fact believe that the group uh, that was killed, the students, was targeted. Um, we've told the public very clearly from the beginning that we believe it was a targeted attack. To be honest, you're going to have to trust us um, on that, and this is the point because we're not going to release why we think that. And then the Idaho State Police Communications Director, Aaron Snell, had previously stated as well that they believe the attack was targeted. Uh, there were survivors of this, and then as well, based on the evidence internally at the scene, that has led the detectives believes and continue to believe that this was in fact a targeted event. Now, there was a vigil uh, that was held Wednesday evening and uh, members of the community uh, gathered on the campus for the ceremony, remembering all four uh, student victims. Now, Mr. Goncalves revealed that the first time uh, that his daughter died alongside her longtime best friend, Maddie, uh, in the same bed. The uh, grieving father, called the girls absolutely beautiful and shared his gratefulness over the girls finding each other as early as sixth grade. And he stated that they uh, did homework together, came to our house together, shared everything together, Mr. Goncalve stated. Um, apparently they started looking at colleges and they came here together. They eventually get into the same apartment together and in the end they died together in the same room in the same bed. Now, before the uh, clarification on Wednesday evening uh, from Kaylee's father, it was widely reported that the two girls had been in separate beds and bedrooms when they were brutally murdered. As of December 1st, 18 days out from when these students were murdered, no suspects have been publicly identified. The murder weapon has not been located, but is believed to be a fixed blade knife. And like I said, nothing to have been found. Now, the house where the uh, victims resided was apparently known as quite the little party house. Now, uh, hints of that can be seen through the window of the main living room. If you take a look at some of these photographs uh, that have uh, been released, uh, you can see a row of red solo cups lined up on a white plastic table. Pretty good sign that some beer pong parties were taking place, but not unusual in college. Also on the tables is an empty Bud Light bottle, a potato chip bag, and a blue serving bowl. On the back wall, there's some garland of uh, artificial greenery complete with good vibes, um, a neon sign that remains illuminated. There's a pink pastel abstract painting, clearly a uh, girl's touch hanging there on the wall. And underneath the uh, painting stands a console table with holiday lights wrapped around it showing the students had um, obviously thinking about Christmas. Uh, the house is still uh, cordoned off uh, with yellow police tape, but uh, the search inside is basically believed to be done. Uh, the house has given up whatever secrets uh, it has, as cops are no longer charging through it, although they stand guard on the apartment 
uh, or house uh, every night. Now you can also take a look, there's partially consumed uh, a cold coffee drink, a nearly empty bottle of over-the-counter medicine, a house plant struggling there, an unwashed frying pan containing a napkin, two steak knives, and a spaghetti server. Now alongside the stack of red solo cups, several cereal bowls with spoons still in them, and an empty microwavable popcorn bag. Now these items uh, could be on the kitchen table in the student housing anywhere in the country. It just shows that they were living their life. And a lot of these pictures uh, show basically um, how the girls uh, were living just up until 18 days ago, uh, enjoying life and sharing a uh, home together there at the University of Idaho. The police are prepared to turn the house over to the landlord. And um, like I said, these photos make it look like the uh, residence is literally frozen in time. At night, the house is lit by a glow coming through the top floor window where it's believed that Kaylee lived and ultimately died. You can see that the computer monitor in her bedroom, that despite the dozen of investigators who have uh, gone through that house uh, numerous times, no one ever switched it off. On the screen, uh, visible through the window, are the words, no network detected. Uh, the computer uh, was more than likely uh, detached when the uh, police department uh, came through to see if they can find any things of evidentiary value. All right, so we'll keep you updated on that matter. I, I don't know. I just don't think they're going to have a whole lot of leads uh, coming here real soon and uh, will quickly become cold case status. All right, let's talk some inside baseball or inside uh, courtroom procedure. This is getting into the weeds, but hopefully um, to our true crime uh, aficionados out there, they will find this interesting. First, the court issued some orders in the Lori Vallow matter. And it's basically transporting her from one county to the next. Um, and the order basically says that they have a hearing on December 8th at 9.30 and that the Fremont County Sheriff shall then transport the defendant to the Fremont County Courthouse on December 8th and that they may attend the hearing. The Madison County Jail shall release the defendant to the Fremont County Sheriff for the purpose of attending the hearing and then retake the defendant into custody from the sheriff upon the defendant's return immediately following the court hearing. Should the defendant have pending matters in the arresting county, the sheriff shall return the defendant to the custody of the Fremont County. Now, in the order to transport, you may think, well, why do they have to go through this? Normally, when somebody appears in court, they are at the jail in the county in which the court is, and the sheriff just brings them to court. But in this particular case, Lori Vallow, who's housed in one county, and the court proceedings are taking place in another county, but it's still the same judicial district. Well, the sheriff just doesn't let somebody come pick somebody up, even if it's another police department or sheriff's department, to take them to court. It has to be done via court order. So if they're in a different county, let's say they're in the Department of Corrections, normally the court or the prosecutor will file what they refer to as a writ of habeas corpus ad prosecutendum, which is basically produce the potty because we're prosecuting this particular person and bring them to court. And nobody's going to release that individual unless and until the paperwork is done correctly. There has to be a court order releasing somebody from custody from one specific location to the next. Now, a lot of people, maybe they all knew that, but it doesn't just happen miraculously. Like I said, the, either the court does the motion and the order or the prosecutor files the motion and the proposed order, they sign it, then it goes to the sheriff, and then the sheriff transports 
the body, habeas corpus, produce the body for prosecution. Or if somebody's in custody and they're a witness, it's a writ of habeas corpus ad testificatum that they have to show up for court. Pretty simple. But it is required. A lot of people think it just miraculously happens. No, like all things in life involving the government, there must be paperwork. And as we say all the time here in the office, if it isn't on the paper, it didn't happen. Next, how about Alec Murdoch? His attorneys want him to not be handcuffed during the court proceedings, and they're moving for an order requiring that he be unshackled during the courtroom proceedings in which news media are present, and obviously that could, you know, uh, prejudice people, the fact that he's in custody. Now, it is a legal fiction when we all go to court and everybody knows the defendant is in custody because he, you know, comes in the magic door and the jury doesn't see him being escorted in by the sheriff. We engage in that legal fiction, we make it up, so we act like he's uh, free. But the jury all knows, well, that's funny, when we take a break, we see the attorneys, but we don't see the defendant outside. I wonder where he could be. That's right, he's in custody. Now, shackling, all right? Now, the Supreme Court has said that they forbid shackling of criminal defendants during trial, absent some special needs, okay? And I've got a couple of stories about that. Uh, but the law has long forbidden routine use of visible shackles during the guilt phase of the trial, and it permits a state to shackle a criminal defendant only in the presence of a special need, all right, because shackling is inherently prejudicial. Uh, it should be permitted only, according to this court, when justified by essential state interest. Now, the issue then becomes, obviously, the trial has not started, and Mr. Murdoch will not be shackled in court, so pretrial is really the issue that the court has to decide. And the court will have to look at whether the person is a threat of escape, uh, whether security measures should be adopted to prevent disruption of the trial. Um, and like I said, normally it is an escape type of issue. Or if somebody has been acting up, the court will say, yeah, we're going to shackle them. All right. Now, normally pretrial, and in most cases the press doesn't show up, the defendant shows up usually with leg chains, uh, a belly chain, with their hands handcuffed uh, to the belly chain. So they can't uh, have full motion of their body. Their hands are literally uh, strapped to a belt chain um, with the handcuffs uh, to that chain as well. Now, I have requested numerous times over the years that the defendant wants to take notes, that he be unshackled so that he can write. 99.9% .9 of the judges are going to say, that's fine as long as the sheriff's okay with it. And 99.9% .9 of the time, the sheriff is gonna say, that's fine. Because you gotta remember, the sheriff is sitting there and he's armed and usually he can take the guy because he's shackled as well, okay? And that makes complete sense. It gets more interesting in court proceedings if somebody has been misbehaving. Uh, I remember I did a trial once, it was a bunch of gang uh, members and uh, they believed that there were going to be issues, that he was a flight risk, he was going to create troubles. Completely unfounded, but the judge did that. So he actually shackled the client to the floor. Now we were at counsel table, and then they covered the counsel table uh, with black felt cloth so that nobody could see that. And the jury left the courtroom uh, before uh, the defendant got up and, and left. Um, I've also had a defendant um, where, well, let's say he was acting up allegedly, 
and they were concerned that he was going to misbehave at court. Um, maybe it's because he had a, maybe attacked a prosecutor. Uh, and these things get, you know, that's a gray area. Anyway, um, he actually had a stun belt uh, placed on him as well. But the court made specific findings, and of course the defense always objects to those types of things, um, and those are a little extreme, all right? Normally what happens when the defendant dresses out at trial, they are you know, permitted to wear a, a suit. Some jails will allow the defendant to have a belt um, or a tie, but when they go back for their breaks, they have to take those off so they don't you know, harm themselves. Um, and normally, uh, the defendants are fitted with a leg brace. And um, it's, it literally looks like a uh, leg brace, something from like uh, Forrest Gump when he's running down uh, the street. The, leg braces come apart. Anyway, this one locks if they extend their leg uh, too far, like in a running position, and then they actually have to stop and push it to uh, extend it again. So that's what's normally done in the trial phase, and nobody would ever know that uh, the defendant has precautions. And that's pretty much in most cases uh, that they have to wear uh, a leg brace of that that type. It's very unusual for it not to take place. So hope that explained a little bit of um, inside uh, baseball or inside courtroom stuff that you don't get to hear every single day. Now, in the case of Alec Murdoch, this is good lawyering, okay? A couple reasons. One, the defendant is creating a record. And if the court denies this request for him not to be, appear shackled, it becomes an appellate issue if there is a conviction. Like I said, normally the court's going to defer to the sheriff for safety concerns. Um, he won't be shackled at trial, but it's good lawyering. And guess what? When the prosecution has to respond to motions like this, what are they not doing? That's right. They're not preparing their case, which means they could be making mistakes, and the defense is going to try to exploit those at trial. Next on the docket, let's talk about George Wagner. That's right. George Wagner IV has been found guilty on all charges, including eight counts of aggravated murder in the Pike County Massacre trial. A sentencing hearing is expected to take uh, uh, up to two weeks um, in late December. Now, the trial began in September and it lasted 11 weeks. The jury started deliberations at 8.30 a.m. Wednesday morning and reached their verdict in eight hours. Now, George was accused of planning and covering up eight murders with the family overnight, uh, April 21st through 22nd of 2016 in rural Piketon, about uh, two hours east of downtown Cincinnati. Now, George, his brother Jake, and their parents, Angela Wagner and Billy Wagner, were all indicted on capital murder charges back in November of 2018. The death penalty is off the table for George after his brother and mother testified against him for the state. Could you imagine what that Christmas would be like? <laughs> no, they're never going to have one together, but could you imagine? Both pled guilty to their role in the slayings last year. Their testimonies were part of their plea deal with the prosecutors. Now, George Wagner was the first one to be tried since eight members of the Roden and Gilly families were killed more than six years ago. Now, George's father, Billy, is continuing to uh, fight the charges, and he'll be tried next year. Uh, now, the victims are Christopher Roden, uh, Kenneth Roden, Gary Roden, Chris Roden, Dana Lynn Roden, and their children, Clarence Frankie Roden, Hannah May Roden, Christopher Roden, and Frankie's 
fiance, Hannah Hazel Gilly. Now, two infants and a toddler were spared by the killers and left behind at the murder scene. A five-day-old baby girl, a six-month-old baby boy, and a three-year-old boy. Prosecutors said the motive in the murders is the custody of the younger daughter of one of the confessed killers, Jake Wagner, and one of the victims he confessed to shooting in the head twice, Hannah Mae Roden. The young couple began dating when she was 13 and he was 18. She became pregnant at 15 with their daughter, Sophia. They broke up after their daughter was born, and Hannah Mae Roden, who had moved on to have a second daughter with another man at the time of her death, had refused to sign custody of Sophia over to Jake Wagner. Prosecutors alleged that that's why the Wagner family carefully planned the murders and killed her family and anyone there who could be a witness. Now, the murders are considered the state's largest and most expensive homicide case to date, and the prosecution has been voluminous. Estimates from the state and local officials say that the cost so far is about $4 million, which has been funded by the state of Ohio. Uh, some 60 witnesses testified over three months, 50 for the state, 10 for the defense, as prosecutors and defense presented thousands of pieces of evidence. Evidence stickers started at A, then they go through Z, then they go AA, and then when they get through that letter of the alphabet, they go BBAAA. Well, these made it all the way to MMM, so a lot of exhibits. Now, court records show there were also some 110 motions that were filed by the attorneys in this case. Now, both the state and the defense agree that uh, George Wagner didn't shoot or kill anyone, uh, but that's where the uh, similarities end. Prosecutors have repeatedly argued that George is complicit in the killings, even though he didn't actually shoot anyone. And I'm telling you, that complicity instruction is tough. It says that if you aid, encourage, abet, or assist somebody in the commission of an offense, it's like you did it yourself. And that's what their theory of prosecution was. And the prosecutors say he is still eligible for aggravation murder convictions and should be convicted, obviously like he was, because he actively participated in the planning and the cover-up of the killings. Now, George may not have uh, pulled the trigger, they stated in closing, but you better believe that he is up to his eyeballs with this family. That's what the prosecutors uh, said in rebuttal to the defense closing arguments. Now, the prosecutor stated, anyone who aids, abets, and assists someone who commits murder can be charged with murder, just like Scott told you. Why would we tell you wrong? Anyway, George testified his family never approached him about the murder plot and that he was asleep the night of the slains. Had he known, he claims he would have stopped them from doing such a heinous thing. Now, George said that his mother and brother both lied during their testimony and their 2021 confessions uh, to the prosecutors as well. Now, the defense um, argued that it was hard for George to testify uh, given his background. He testified that uh, he was raised to mistrust law enforcement, homeschooled by his mother, uh, only until his uh, early teens, taught as a child by his father to commit crimes like arson and robbery, and married his now ex-wife when they were both very young. George repeatedly fled the family home only to return because he didn't have the fortitude to break free, free from the family, his attorney claimed. So obviously they didn't uh, believe his story or they believed, yeah, we, he didn't do it, but he's complicit. That's a tough one. And you always hate when the prosecutor asks for that complicity instruction because it's a little disingenuous. Now, in this case, they've always claimed that, but 
oftentimes when you have a homicide trial, you say, my client didn't do it. I mean, he may have just been there. I mean, mere presence is not enough to uh, convict somebody of a crime. But then they throw in that uh, complicity. And of course, then the defense gets to argue, ladies and gentlemen, they came in here and said he was the trigger guy. He did it, he did it, he did it. And then they throw in complicity and say, well, if you don't think he did it, guess what? He was complicit. It's a tough one. It's tough. It's always tough explaining that to clients as well. Got to choose your friends carefully. All right, next on the docket. Yep, that 70s guy, Danny Masterson. Well, his rape trial has come to an end and a judge declared a mistrial because the jury was hung. Means they could not reach a verdict. Now, uh, Masterson was in the courtroom yesterday waiting to hear the verdict when uh, the jury announced that they were in fact deadlocked. The judge then declared a mistrial. The jury began deliberations two weeks ago after four weeks of testimony from the alleged victims. They had a break because of Thanksgiving, obviously, and two jurors were replaced on Monday with alternates after testing positive for COVID. Now, it's unclear if the prosecutors will decide to retry the actor again. They certainly can. He can be tried again and again and again if they're in fact mistrial, mistrial, mistrial. But normally the prosecutor will go and talk to the jury and they will see what the count was. If it was 11 to 1 in favor of guilt and there was one holdout juror, guess what? They're going to go try it again. If it was 1 and 11, and 11 for not guilty, prosecutor may say, Maybe they just didn't believe our complaining witnesses and we need to go back and uh, reevaluate and maybe have a hard talk and see where things go. Anyway, uh, Mr. Masterson was facing a maximum sentence of 45 years to life behind bars. And uh, the charges go back to uh, 2020 with three counts of uh, sexual assault, which alleged victims claiming incidents between 2001 and 2003, which was right during the middle of the run of his sitcom, That 70s Show. Now, Mr. Masterson did not testify um, at his trial, and uh, the defense has always maintained that the incidents either A, didn't happen, or B, were consensual. We'll let you know if the uh, prosecution goes forward. Uh, mistrials are tough, and frankly, they're more tough for the defense because the prosecution has now seen what your defense is, they can go back and try and fix their case. Um, my experience is mistrials, and if there's a retrial, second time usually doesn't go well for the defendant. Um, the most I've ever had was a mistrial um, three times, and then they finally gave up. Next on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. Meet Austin Michael Croy. He was arrested and charged with robbery with a weapon. Police alleged Mr. Croy went to the Healthy Phone Tech and gathered two Bluetooth speakers with a total value of about $120 and began to try to leave the store. Well, the store employee stopped him and said, hey, you need to purchase those items. Well, Mr. Croy then put the items back and lifted his shirt showing a gun and a taser on his way out. He told the clerk that he does whatever he wants. Well, the suspect, Mr. Croy, then went to his car and proceeded to put a bandana on his face and a blue jacket, like they would never know it was him. Well, while Mr. Croy was uh, at his car, the store clerk and uh, customers locked the front door and went to the back of the building and called the police, where Mr. Croy was found pounding on the door when the police arrived. That's right, he was arrested. So I guess Mr. Croy 
doesn't always get to do what he wants. And that's why he's our dumb criminal of the day. Mr. Croy, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Keep your hands to yourself. If it's not your property, you don't take it. It's just that simple. All right, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.